This morning we're going to be in Matthew 25. If you haven't already, you can turn there and turn to verse 31. We are going to be looking at together Jesus' promise to return and judge all the peoples. So we should be preparing ourselves to inherit this kingdom of heaven that he's speaking about. That's our main focus, our main idea. Jesus' return to judge all the peoples and our preparation to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I read this article in Thanksgiving, over Thanksgiving, and it was uh, from the Washington Post, and the reporter was reporting, he, he writes, David McCombs has spent the past 10 Thanksgivings camped out in a Best Buy parking lot in central Alabama. Each year, he and a rotating crew of friends have shown up days, sometimes a week in advance, and set up tents and couches and folding chairs to wait for the official start of the holiday shopping season. I don't know if any of you have done this. Maybe not at a Best Buy, but maybe at a movie theater or something like that, or trying to get tickets to the big game. But he reports that they they played lacrosse, they've organized basketball tournaments, they've watched movies that they projected up onto the side of Best Buy. All night, they slept in sleeping bags and hammocks as they waited for the year's biggest competition, beating their neighbors to discount doorbusters. But this fall, bear with me, this fall, the local Best Buy has closed. Yet another casualty of America's changing shopping habits and brought the decade-long tradition to an end. Just as well, McComb says. He's doing more of his shopping online, too. Quote, Black Friday has lost its luster, he said. It's just another day of sales now that you can buy everything online. And whether or not you agree that the brick and mortar is closing, that, that the point is that this, this man uh, is, is kind of, in a sense, grieving, and they're reporting on the fact that these holiday traditions of Black Friday are, are coming to an end. Now, I was thinking about that as I was reading. I was thinking about our passage today. And it just really impressed upon me as how hard it is to think of any traditions that have been around a long time. Think about your family traditions. Think about the traditions of a country, maybe of a, of a culture. How long do these traditions last? Traditions seem to come in and they go out. They come and go. This man's holiday tradition only lasted for 10 years. Could be 100 years, but they come and go. What doesn't come and go, what always lasts and is always reliable is the word of God. We usually aren't told when something will happen in God's word, the Bible, but we are told that it will happen. And because we are told that it will happen, we can count on it. It will happen. God won't let us down. And next week we're going to begin our series, our Advent series, and we're going to spend some time thinking together about the prophecies of the Old Testament, how it was prophesied that a Messiah would come. They didn't know when it would happen. They just knew the prophecies, and, and it did happen. They knew that God would send a Savior, but not when. In God's good timing, according to the counsel of his own will, he sent his Son, born of a virgin, to redeem us to God. And just like that promise of Advent that we'll study in the weeks to come, we're going to study today another promise, a second Advent, So with your Bibles open to Matthew 25, I'm going to start reading in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him he will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So my sermon today will have three points. We want to jot this down. This is the territory that we're going to be moving through. In verses 31 to 33, we're going to be thinking about the judge returning. The judge returns in glory. In verses 34 to 40, we're going to see the judge welcomes. He will welcome the righteous people into heaven. And in verses 41 to 46, we're going to see the judge punishes. The judge punishes the wicked and cursed. So the judge returns, the judge welcomes, and the judge punishes. First, uh, we should know as we begin in looking at verse 31 that Jesus says, when and not if. When the Son of Man comes. The point is that the teaching that follows this word, when, is a sure and fixed promise. This judgment of the world is coming. It isn't a matter of chance. Now, you'll remember that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection on several occasions leading up to the actual events. Although his disciples didn't un- seem to understand what he was saying, it was done nonetheless, just as he said it would be. Jesus said X was going to happen, and X did happen. Likewise, in many places, in this gospel and others, he says he will return to judge the world. And with the same face, faith, we know it will happen. Next, we see that Jesus says the Son of Man will return. This Son of Man is a title that Jesus often used for himself. The phrase occurs in several places in the Old Testament, but in Daniel 7.13, it's specifically used in reference to this one that will be given dominion, this one that will come, and all the nations will serve him. Jesus is signaling something to us as we begin our text today. He's signaling that he's going to connect himself to this Old Testament prophecy. He's telling us that he is the one to come, that will receive this dominion. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Notice how he will come back. He comes in glory and with angels. In another place it says he comes with mighty angels in flaming fire. I've already kind of alluded to the Advent season that's coming in in the weeks coming up. 
where we're going to celebrate this humble babe, right, that comes, is laid, wrapped in cloth, laid in a manger. There's no room for him in the inn. He has to flee into Egypt as a refugee. He's born into this obscure family. He learns this humble trade of carpentry. His second coming will not be like the first. He will return in glory with fierce angelic entourage. All eyes will be fixed on him. All thoughts or concerns of anything else will fade away and be forgotten. The great day of judgment will be upon us. The Son of Man will return in glory from heaven and will sit on a glorious throne. Verse 31. One commentator said that Jesus sits now in heaven on a throne of grace that we may approach him. On this day, he will sit on a glorious throne of judgment. And not only is he going to come in glory, our text says, he's going to come in power. Now, depending on your relationship with God, the thought of Jesus coming in power can have different effects on you. It could either be tremendously comforting or tremendously frightening. His angels, it says, will, will gather all the peoples before the throne. See how powerful Jesus is. He will command all the peoples from all the earth and all the ages to stand before him. None can escape this gathering. None can refuse Christ. All will be made to stand before the throne. Not only is his power on display in the gathering, but also in the separating, which is next. Know this for sure, brothers and sisters and friends. All of us gathered here in this place today, all of us here right now will be gathered before the throne on that day, will be separated into two groups on that day. That will happen because Jesus is powerful in his reign and judgment. We've never even come close to experiencing that type of power on display in the world that we have today. We think of powerful figures that are in the news. None have power like we will see on that day. Verse 32, Jesus illustrates for us what this power will be like, what this separating power will be like. He says it'll be like a shepherd calling his sheep out from a mixture of sheep and goats mixed together. And I've read that there are times uh, perhaps when shepherds will have their sheep and goats grazing together, or maybe they're watering them together. There are various times when it's beneficial to have these mixed together. But in the evening or for some other reason, they need to, to separate them. And the shepherd will expertly do this task. He will go in with his voice and with his, with his implements, his tool, his staff, and he will separate them. He will not allow any of the sheep to remain with the goats, and he will not allow any of the goats to remain with the sheep. As he daily and routinely separates his sheep from the goats, Jesus will surely be able to separate us from all others. So here's our question on this first section this morning, I want to pose to you. Do you believe that Jesus will return one day to judge all the earth? And not just that he will come to judge all the earth, but he will come in this glory and power. And if you believe that, how are you living now in light of that? Think about that for a second. The ultimate reality is coming, and all will be laid bare before him. This will be our defining moment in life. This is the narrow gate that we all must pass through, or not. These three verses here at the beginning of this passage are meant to grab our attention. 
what, what follows, his address to the sheep, his address to the goats, what follows that is based on your belief of this day. We have many beliefs and traditions and many things that we hold dear. But if we love God and we love his word, we must believe. It must be shaped by this truth of this coming judgment. This return of Christ. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So the judge is going to come and the judge is going to welcome. He addresses the sheep that are on his right. And before he even speaks, we we have some clue that he's going to say something favorable, something good to the sheep. First, he sets the sheep on his right, which in that time, in that culture, connoted something, a, a blessing. It was favorable to be set on the right. It was a place of preference and honor. And secondly, he calls them sheep, which you may sound bad to your ears, but that was actually a good thing. God often referred to his people in the Old Testament as his sheep, as that he was their shepherd, and Jesus himself calls himself the, the chief shepherd. So it'd be, it'd be easy to guess from these clues that he's going to say something favorable. Jesus, the son of man, here identified as the king, is now addressing the sheep. But let's take a moment and consider how you might be feeling on that day. I want you to think about that. I, I had an image when I thought about the final judgment. It's called the final judgment in our text, right? Right above the, the heading there. And when you think about the final judgment, it's, it, it's very scary, and it should be, in a sense. And so we might have these feelings of fear, or uh, we might think that we're going to be clustered together for comfort and support. Maybe you'll, you're thinking you'll be perplexed or anxious. But if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, I think we have a lot of scriptural evidence to support the idea that on that day, when Christ comes and gathers us and separates us and addresses us, is we're going to be feeling joy. We're going to be feeling jubilant. We're going to be full of joy. Our Savior has returned. He did not tarry forever. He has come back. He's come to rescue us from all of our trials, all of our enemies. He's plucked us up from our, our lives of sojourning on the earth. Second Thessalonians 1.10 says that on that day, he will be glorified in the saints. It says, we will, he will be marveled at among all who believed. The end of the age has come, and the Savior is revealed. I want you to hear a couple passages from Revelation 19. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Hear from Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Think about it. The faithful through the ages are going to be reunited with the Lamb who laid his life down to purchase them. He's finally arrived. He's sitting on his throne. I don't think I'm pressing it too much to believe that we're going to be experiencing joy and not fear as he turns to address us as his sheep. This life of sojourning and struggling that we've been through has finally come to an end and we are being addressed by our Savior. Here in verse uh, 34 to 
40, let me point out a few things to you as we walk through this passage. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, these things I'm saying to you are for your encouragement. This text is for our encouragement today and our instruction. These are things that we know, but we need to keep knowing. We need to keep believing as we go through life. First, see that it is God and God alone that saves the sheep. I've already read it. Verse 34 says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Revelation 7 declares that salvation belongs to God. You'll remember how baffled the disciples were when he told them it was difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but that what was impossible for man is possible with God. The Bible teaches us that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, before creation itself, and has predestined believers for adoption into his family. So the first thing we need to see is that salvation comes from God. In a moment, we're going to look at all the things that these sheep were commended for, the list that he, he, he says to them. But I don't want you to confuse the fact that Jesus isn't tying their performance in some religious duties to their entrance into the kingdom. He tells them straight from the front that they are blessed by God, and that's why they may come. We're wandering sheep. We don't and can't save ourselves. That's completely contrary to the gospel. We are saved by God, and all glory is given to God. And notice next that we'll receive this heaven, we'll receive heaven through inheritance. It says you come inherit the kingdom. And that's a significant point. Think about inheritance for a second. I want to think about it. What is inheritance? How does it work? Well, inheritance is based on this familial relationship normally. It's a, it's a family tie. You get land or property because of sonship, because you're a son or a daughter, and it just passes down to you. You inherit it. In the parable of the prodigal son, you remember that? Jesus teaching the parable of the prodigal son. How did the son receive his inheritance? It was from the father. He got it because he was a son. So why is it that Jesus tells the sheep in verse 34 to come inherit the kingdom prepared for them. All those who are children of God receive heaven as an inheritance. Ephesians 1.13, in reference to the Holy Spirit, says we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what does this mean that, that Christians have a claim on heaven? We're not going to be guests in heaven, I don't think. We're not going to be sitting around awkwardly in heaven like we're in somebody else's house. I, I thought of a time, and maybe you've had this experience, where you had a sleepover at a friend's house when you were young. And when you're at a friend's house having a sleepover, what always happens? You wake up first, and you're lying like this. And you're like, do I wake up my friend? You know, and how weird and awkward would it be to tromp downstairs and pour yourself a bowl of cereal? You know, your friend's mom or dad comes in and you're sitting there eating their Fruit Loops. It, there's a kind of a way that you behave when you're a guest in someone's house. And we may have that idea in our mind about heaven, but we receive it as an inheritance. We're not going to be awkward guests in heaven. And what a, what a stark contrast that should be with our life here on earth, our existence on earth right now. We're not supposed to be treating this life as our, our final destination. This is not our home. We are sojourners here. 
we have work to do here, of course, but we live here in tents. We do have a permanent home. We are made for life with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in His kingdom. One day, Jesus will return. He'll separate us and He'll say to us, Welcome, those who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. One last thing to note about this address to the sheep. The Lord welcomes sinners. The Lord welcomes sinners made righteous and who live righteously. This list of deeds that they have performed can look daunting. And it might be it, it, might, it might fool you into thinking you, you ought to do this list if you want to receive the kingdom. So you might be thinking, so to get heaven, I need to check these boxes. I need to perform these duties. I need to be super righteous. But let's recall together that Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for the spiritually sick, the spiritually dead. Let's remember he came for those who were enemies of God. Jesus died for them. He died for us. He redeems those who are far from God and brings them near. Not those who believe that they don't need a physician. Not those who believe they can earn their way to heaven. Who mock God's mercy. Not those who believe that they can tell God how to run the universe. So he takes these selfish, terrible, sinful people and convicts them of their sinfulness and brings them to repentance. But these repentant sinners are still sinners. We're still sinners. We still sin. And we still repent and believe, repent and believe. That's how we walk out our life, following God in repentance and belief. Former prostitutes and tax collectors, former cheats and swindlers, the proud, the arrogant, the scoffers, the gluttons, the slothful. Remember, those are the people that Jesus came to save. Those are the people that fill the pages of this Gospel of Matthew, that fill the pages of Acts. Those people are us. And what have all those people been doing since they were saved by God? How have they been living Well, they've been being transformed. They're being sanctified. They're now performing the deeds in keeping with their salvation. Like Jim preached last week, they have become salt and light into the world. They're taking the gospel to all they meet. They're feeding the hungry and helping the homeless. They're overflowing with the love of God that's transforming their lives. They're giving clean water to the thirsty and poor. They're meeting the refugee and welcoming them. They're giving clothes to those without clothes. They're visiting the imprisoned. They're seeking out the enslaved. And on, those, on that day, this day that Christ is telling us about, these people will find that as they were loving their neighbor all around them with the love of the gospel, they were actually loving Jesus. They were ministering to Jesus. So let me challenge us all this morning to remember that you have an inheritance in heaven. So don't store up your treasures here on earth. Are your eyes so fixed on, your, on heaven or are your eyes fixed on earthly pleasures or earthly pains that you have no eyes or energy for God in heaven? Take time to think through your priorities. Where do you spend your time? Think about it. Where do you spend your time, your money, your resources? What thoughts do we give to the misfortunes and struggles of others? Do you have a burden for others? that they would be prepared to receive a welcome into the kingdom of heaven. And when we take these heart inventories, do we find 
self-interest and preoccupation dominating. It shouldn't be that way with those who follow Christ. There will be a day when the skies roll back and the angels appear and gather all people. What will become of all these earthly kingdoms and pursuits and investments? And yet let us labor in the earth with an eye to serving our Lord. Brothers and sisters, are you free with your time and resources because you realize this is not your home? Are you content with less in this world because one day you will inherit the ultimate kingdom? That's the address to the sheep. And let's turn our attention now to Jesus, the judge, who punishes, starting in verse 41. 41 to the end, 46. The judge punishes. The Son of Man has come as judge in his glory, gathering all the people of the earth. He has separated them to the right and to the left, and he has welcomed his sheep. He comes, he welcomes, and now he judges and punishes the goats that are to the left. He turns to the left of the throne. And just as I had you think about how you feel about his address to the sheep, I wonder how you feel about this section. For me, it was, it was difficult to study and to read and to think about. I was constantly filled with a sense of dread and sorrow as I considered the fate of the goats. It's dreadful to think of facing God's wrath for sin without a Savior. If the part on the sheep could be characterized as joyful reunion with Christ, then this part has a mood of despair and fear at being sent away from Christ. My first point is that these people are all cursed because of their own sin. The sheep were blessed not because they had not sinned. They were sinners. It's just that their sins had been forgiven. Not because they checked a list of duties, a list of charities, but their sins had been forgiven by, by God through Christ, through faith in Christ. Their curse that is spoken of here is a curse from breaking the law the holy law of God. The wages of our sin is our death. Everyone has sinned. When we sin, we're sinning against our holy creator. We're walking like our forefather Adam and all those that have gone before us. We become lawbreakers and the curse of Adam is upon us. Trying to follow the law and trying to perfectly keep it will not help us. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the goats were cursed because of their own sin. The sin that Jesus calls out in this passage is the sins of omission. These are things that they did not do. You did not feed me. You did not give me something to drink. You did not visit me. Those are called sins of omission. They omitted them. They didn't do them. They failed to do these things. Of course, he's not excluding sins of commission, things that we do, uh, we actively do. He's not dismissing that. He's just not focusing on that in this address. There are sins of commission. Uh, One commentator offered up why why he focused on these sins of omission. What was special about that? Why was he addressing that? One suggestion I thought was helpful stemmed from an observation from verse 40. So go back and look at verse 40. Jesus, uh, the king, says... And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So kind of looking at that least of these my brothers, uh, this commentator was saying that uh, in his view, the the recipients of 
the shepherd's kindness were, uh, the, the recipients of the sheep's kindness, the people that they ministered to were traveling evangelists, traveling ministers. They were ministers of the gospel. They were people that were bringing the gospel to them. So this represented, uh, it represented their faith. They had heard the gospel message by these traveling evangelists who would have been poor and they would have been persecuted and they would have needed to be loved on and, and sent along the way. Think about the trials of Paul, all that he went through, the list that he gives us in some of his letters. That these kinds of people are pictured. And so what, uh, what this commentator thinks that this, what's represented here is the transformation we experience by the gospel. So when, you, when the goats who are being condemned weren't transformed by the gospel... They didn't care for those that came and brought the word to them. Uh, it's, a, it's a sign of their condemnation because they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't confess their sins and repent. I, I don't think that's necessary to see that, but I think it's interesting to think uh, about why he focuses on these sins of omission when he talks about the least of these, his brother. The sheep had responded to this gospel. The goats did not. So not only should we notice that it's for their own sins that they're being cursed, let's notice that it's possible, and you should hear me this morning, it's possible to be deceived about our relationship with God. We think we know God. We think we're known and accepted by God. Haven't you heard people say, God's going to accept me. I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. Surely he'll let me into his kingdom. We see in verse 44 Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, etc.? They address him as Lord, just as the sheep had done before. They either think that they know Jesus, they either think that they are following Jesus or have followed, or they're pretending to. They like to be counted as one of the sheep, but they're goats. It reminds me of what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7. Jesus said, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. He says he will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we should be aware that it's possible to be self-deceived about knowing God in this life. And lastly, I'd like to take note that these proceedings, this judgment that's happening at the end of the age is final. Look in verse 46. Jesus' judgment is final. The goats are cursed because of their sin and they are all sent away into the eternal fire. There is no escaping. There is no delay. We see the finality of this sentence in verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The judgment of the sheep and the goats is final. Jesus, our judge, has the authority and power to gather, separate, judge, and sentence. And I want you to know, and you probably know this, but I want you to know this morning that man in our infinite pride truly thinks we can go toe-to-toe with God. We all think, maybe it's crossed our mind, that we'll be able to go before the bar and argue our case before our judge, before God, our creator. I consider Job to illustrate this point. Scripture says that he was a righteous man, certainly more righteous than me, maybe most of us, according to the flesh. He was stricken by the hand of providence and he suffered much and he told his friends all he desired to do was to stand before God and argue his case. God shows up 
in Job chapter 38 and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he goes on, and he goes on. And by chapter 40, Job, who has only been listening to God, finally says, Behold, I am a man of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. And I think this perfectly illustrates what actually happens to our pride when we stand face to face with God. In Job's case, he only heard God from a whirlwind. In our case, we're told that we'll stand before the throne and Jesus will address us. So we need to put away all arrogant notions that we're going to speak back to God or argue our case. It simply isn't going to happen that way. Our wisdom is nothing before the all-knowing God. Our power is nothing compared to the all-sovereign creator. So finally, as we come to think about how we're going to apply this last section, maybe it's obvious. Considering that all people are under the curse of sin and that all will be punished justly with an eternal judgment because of our sin, each of us must take stock of our own selves. Let me address the Christian. To the Christian, we should consider again the reality of, the, of this judgment of sinners. Think with me about this judgment of these sinners, these goats that are sent away into eternal judgment. It's been said that we shouldn't use scare tactics from the pulpit to try to get conversions. We shouldn't use emotional manipulation, and we shouldn't. We should be careful about that. But it doesn't mean we should avoid speaking of final judgment and eternal punishment. This will be our common experience. Everyone that is listening to my voice now will experience this. We're going to stand before the throne of judgment. And I, I was thrum, thumbing through the book of Acts, and I found, just laying there on the surface, four references by the apostles in their preaching. This is right after Christ has risen, and they're going out, and they're preaching to all the cities and towns. Four references to this final judgment that was part of their sermons. They were speaking of this day, and they were warning people of the danger. So to the Christian, I would say today that we should be aware of this. We should be willing to use and to illustrate to our neighbor the dangers of this day, the dangers of dying without Christ. And to those who don't yet believe and follow Jesus, I would say, you're still in your sins, and you're still under this curse. And since none of us have any guarantees about tomorrow, we need to pursue this with diligence. We need to pursue the Lord with utmost urgency. There's no bigger question, and there's no bigger day on your calendar than the day we're talking about. And there's no better day than today to turn to the Lord. So if you're touched by a sense of guilt or fear of knowing your sins are still on you, then call out to God in Jesus' name. To you then, I would say that Jesus came to redeem sinners for God. He took upon himself the sins of the world. He suffered the wrath of God upon the cross in our place. If we receive him by faith, our sins will be forgiven. The call is for repentance of sin and turning to God through faith in Christ. Let's pray together.